Good evening, listeners. It is the 11th of February, 2018, and you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Sarah Kelly. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are so happy to have you here. So how about we just get started by you telling us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a second year student here at Oregon State University. I'm in the Master of Arts program for Environmental Arts and Humanities. And my work is uh, situated at the H.J. Andrews Forest. And I'm doing uh, the Discovery Trail there. So I lead students, high school and middle school students, on the Discovery Trail. And, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at what kind of outcomes they're having now. I'm looking at the data that we collect on the trail. And I'm also doing a creative piece about my experience with the students on the trail. Very cool. I'm so intrigued by by your major and the different components um, of your program. But you mentioned the H.J. Andrews Forest, and I just want to make sure that our listeners know what that is. So you can can you describe that a little bit more and, and why it is unique and such a neat place? Absolutely. So the H.J. Andrews Forest was established in 1840 or 19, excuse me, 1948 <laughs> mm-hmm. as an experimental forest to study the effects of forestry logging on a forest ecosystem. And in 1980, they became one of the first they were a charter member for the long term ecological research program in the states. And they've been a member ever since. So they've had long-term ecological research happening there since not only 1980, but um, even before that when I was an experimental forest. So a lot of research happens at the, at the Andrews, as we so affectionately call it. <laughs> um, and it doesn't stop at science either. We have writers and residents who um, have written really great poetry and prose, some of which I'll maybe read for you tonight. And we have uh, some education research happening now with the Discovery Trail. So the Discovery Trail, this is um, a newer uh, trail to the Andrews, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the physical trail was actually built in 2011. And um, as far as I know, it was built not only to have students out on the trail and to learn about forest ecosystems, but for the researchers, actually. So we have some instrumentation on the trail. We have uh, different researchers who are doing data collection about uh, microclimates and forests. So we have the discovery tree that's heavily instrumented and lots <laughs> of research happening around that. And we have some pictures that we take along the way of uh, like dry, dry stream beds, with this, which the students on the Discovery Trail actually get to learn about while they're 
they're visiting and uh, some other cool instrumentation on the trail. So the actual curriculum itself wasn't developed until just a few years ago. And our first students were on the trail in 2016. And our first students that had the iPad led curriculum, which is a cool feature of the trail, was uh, just this last spring and summer. So we've had two full seasons now of students on the trail with the iPads learning about the forest. Very cool. So you mentioned that you might have a little something to read. And I think maybe before we dive in a little bit deeper and hear more about the um, specific stops on the trail, if you could um, just sort of get us in the mindset maybe um, by reading a little something for us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before I do that, I'd, I'd just like to say that the Discovery Trail, like the real intention behind it is for the students to understand the multiple ways that we can learn about a place and become intimate with a place and that it's not just through science but it's also through arts and humanities so it's really an integrated interdisciplinary curriculum that we lead the students through and not only are they doing some artistic activities and hearing from writers who have written there at the forest but we're also giving them opportunities to reflect on their own values and to really have space for some mindfulness um, so with that in mind I'll read from Forest Understory. This is the first book of a 200-year-long project for uh, writers to interact with the forest at the Andrews and learn about place. And so I'm going to read from Interview with the Watershed. The students actually read this on stop three, where that dry stream bed, that variable stream bed is. And... Uh, I'll say to Robin Wall Kimmer, she is a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. So she's actually of Native American heritage and she's a moss ecologist. So she has this interesting relationship with the environment as well, where she's integrating arts, humanities and science. Very cool. The elders used to say that you could learn a lot from listening to water. It will tell you what you need to know, what has happened before and what is on the way. My friend Frank Link from the mountains to the south of here tells me that his people still make a circuit to all the springs and streams in their homelands to check on the health of the land. They taste the water, watch its flow, and see how thick the plants grow. They clear any sediment from the springs and look for the Pacific giant salamander, a sign of the water's well-being. At each pool, they offer prayers of thanksgiving for the waters, and in hopes that they will continue to run. Long ago into the present day, our people did not turn to sacred texts for understanding. We understood back then that wisdom lived in the land. And another excerpt from a little further on in this piece. Water is a storyteller, and listening to that story helped to write a new one in which old growth has a role. It's a story nearly too late in being heard, but now there is a chance. These studies have been pivotal, pivotal in changing our thinking about forest management and understanding the connections between what we sow in the short term and what we reap over time. The opportunity lies in listening to the land for stories that are simultaneously material and spiritual. It's a hopeful sign that people return to the words of the elders and again look to the land for knowledge. Our people say that long ago we could all speak the same language, the trees, the birds, the wolves, and the water, but that we have long since forgotten. Human capacity has been so reduced that we understand only our tongue. 
I like to think that in the right hand, scientific research is a conversation, an interview of sorts between two parties that don't speak the same language. Robin ends at the end to talk a little bit about the intersection between science and poetry. Mm -hmm. It's a hopeful thing when scientists look to the land for knowledge, when they try to translate into mathematics the stories that water can tell. But it's not only science that we need if we are to understand. Lewis Thomas identified a fourth and highest form of language. The language is poetry. The data may change our minds, but we need poetry to change our hearts. That's so beautiful. <laughs> and I think it really represents this. I mean, what you're doing by um, developing this curriculum and bringing this to the students is so much deeper than, I mean, what that just mentioned with, with data collection. It really is more um, of a... Uh, personal and um, introspective experience. Absolutely. I wonder if you can give an example of a student that you led in the forest that really helped to uh, maybe help help you uh, feel that like what you're doing is very tangibly awesome. You know, like was there an experience that you can recall of a student, you know, maybe not really sure about what they're doing in the forest. And then by the end of this experience that they had with you, they're really excited about either studying forests or science or being more attuned to the world around them. Yeah, I have lots of stories, actually. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, one, I was I was spending the day with with the students. They didn't know it, but I was looking at all their responses today and looking at the data. And, and I'm reminded of one student in particular on the last trip we led in October. And uh, he's very tall, much taller than me. I think he might be featured on the blog, actually. I look like the little <laughs> short child, and I'm actually the adult. <laughs> But he um, he was on stop six. Stop six is one of the favorites of the students because they're at Lookout Creek at that time. It's really beautiful, very peaceful, and the stream is flowing, and you just really get this sense of connection with place. Mm -hmm. And they they hear um, a a legend that you mentioned in the blog too, Salmon Boy, mm -hmm. and the Salmon Boy is all about how do we interact with non-humans and how should we interact with them so they read this story about salmon boy and at the end of it he said i am salmon boy that is who i am i i wasn't always connected to and i didn't understand my impact on the land but now i know that i need to care for it and i know that it's important and the whole time walking back off the trail, he just kept, kept repeating over and over, I am Salmon Boy, I am Salmon Boy. And he's just <laughs> grinning from ear to ear. And, uh, you know, he and, and so many others, even if they, they aren't necessarily expressing newfound care for the environment or responsibility, they are saying how it's impacting them and their mood and how they feel peaceful and relaxed. And you should see some of the answers they give us of their experience on the trail. It's almost as good as some of the writing and forest understory it's really specific and they really are are getting a chance to observe their surroundings and have a full sensory experience for those listeners that are interested in the book uh we you can find us on twitter and i put a link to that book just now um it's where you can find us at kbvrid again that's at kbvrid so you can find the book it's called forest understory um, and i believe it's from university of washington press i think if that's correct Let's see. Um, I can check. We can figure that one <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. You're right. <laughs> um, so 
Do you just want to walk us through sort of a day and in, in what this field trip looks like from the beginning when the students step off a bus and, and kind of what um, what they're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this once the students arrive to the headquarters, we have the forest director, Mark Schultz, who's a great co- collaborator. He does a lot of the ecological curriculum for this program. Give uh, an introduction to place and understanding, just like I told you all, the importance of the forest, the Andrews Forest, and the research that's being done there and the history behind it. And then we actually do a reading from Forest Understory, and then we ask them to put away all their electronics and to line up in a single file, <laughs> which maybe they're not normally excited about, but what they get to do after that is interact with the forest in on a silent sensory walk. So we ask them to really open their eyes and see all the different light that's coming in and the differences that they're seeing in the forest as they walk along. How does it feel to walk on the trail? They can touch the trees or the moss. Maybe it's dripping on them. Uh, what do they hear? Do they hear, hear bird song? Do they hear maybe some swishing of rain pants typically is what uh, <laughs> <laughs> what most of us hear. And at the end of the silent sensory walk, we do um, kind of a gathering and prep them to get on the discovery trail. So they have an opportunity to just be in the forest, which actually was a comment that came from the first group of students we had on the trail. So we decided we need a little bit more time for them to just be in the forest before they got into the curriculum. So once that happens, we take them onto the trail and each group, we split them up into groups. So we have groups of two to three and they get an iPad and the iPad is their teacher and the forest is their teacher and they're leaders of their own learning experience, really. Um, We observe the students, make sure that if they have any glitches with the iPad that we can help them through it. But uh, what they see on the iPad is typically questions about what they're looking at, what's in front of them. So for instance, on stop two, it's a disturbance spot. And we had a wind storm knock down a lot of trees there in I think 2011. And so there's all these clues of something that happened. And we kind of work them through the process of what a researcher would do, like understanding how do I know what happened in this place? And and then they, they get that mindfulness piece, the kind of more artistic piece at the end where they think about something drastic that happened in their own lives and what that meant for them. And then they kind of think about how change can help the forest grow in new ways, even though something may seem negative or destructive. And then they, they relate that back to their own lives as well to think how they can grow from experiences that they thought were maybe neg- negative. And Salmon Boy that I mentioned earlier, he went on that stop and he had really profound conversation with his um, his his group member there. And that's what I was observing in that in that picture on the blog was them talking about their experiences moving to Oregon, actually was what they mentioned. So that's just one stop, but we have 10 stops on there and lots of different um, activities for them. They get to hear the sounds of the forest on stop nine. They do a sound mapping experience. They get to learn about spotted owls and red tree voles. And uh, it it has a lot to offer um, students who have many different interests. So so I know you mentioned that there's 10 stops, but do you, do they have time to visit all of those or do you, do the students, um, have you ever had any students come back again? We haven't yet, but we've okay. had interest. Definitely. Mm-hmm. We've had, um, we have the same teachers come back. So we have cultivated relationships with the teachers who've actually done a lot of um, professional development 
meant at the Andrews already. So they're already familiar with place and can think about ways to integrate what they're learning on the Discovery Trail back into the classroom. But the students have an opportunity to do three stops because we are asking them to do so much at each stop. And we added the silent sensory walk and some other activities at the end. Um, We really wanted them to be able to focus on three and have enough time to work through those activities that we're giving them. But what's interesting is we've grouped everything to achieve the same similar um, intervention or curriculum. So even though they're not doing exactly the same thing, they actually are getting um, pretty close to the same experience, at least in the kinds of questions that they're thinking about. So one of the categories that I have written down here is one of the things that they explore uh, in, individually is the idea of change and stability. Mm-hmm. And I think the example of of seeing a large windstorm that created some large change, but noticing the forest as it is now and seeing how it's stable I think it's it's a really nice metaphor to then ask the kids, how does that forest relate to you? Because everybody has their own experiences, but then allowing students, uh, these high school students, to ask them to reconnect with what they see in front of their eyes and how that can also be related to themselves and what kind of change and stability and, and movement um, has in their own lives. I think that's that sounds really powerful as a student who especially at the high school age nowadays we live through our phones mm-hmm. and behind our screens, but to ask them to really look and think critically and then relate that back to how, how do you see your life in, in this forest? That sounds really, really powerful for, for these young students. Yeah, I think I think for some of them it is, and for some of them it's kind of laughable, right? Um, because they're not asked to do those kinds of things, and they it, they may feel a little out of place to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but many of them, absolutely, if they have the opportunity, and, and some of it is dependent on on who you're with in your group too, and how receptive they are to having that real personal introspection, because it's not something that really even as adults that we're comfortable with always. Mm-hmm. Um, but give, getting them used to that and introducing them to the idea of mindfulness in different ways is something we are trying to do. Yeah. And I I think getting back to change, um, you know, what another thing we want them to come away with is that we can't just assume that because there is this one change that it is good or bad. We want them to understand the complexity of what happens in a forest, the complexity of our, our own human impact on the environment and that there's not necessarily a straightforward answer always. And it's more about the quest of finding that answer and kind of questioning our own assumptions about what's right and wrong and good and bad. Yeah, definitely. And it reminds me of um, this mindset, a dualistic mindset of where everything is, you know, growing up, there's a right and there's a wrong answer. And it's really probably introducing this concept of, um, you know, there are gray areas and to these students, and maybe it's the first time that they're experiencing some of these some of these thoughts of like, oh, well, there isn't a right answer necessarily, or this is the first time that I am thinking about a disturbance in my life, and and so that I can see why that could be laughable, certainly because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But um, I think by introducing those ideas and um, that it's okay to have those thoughts, it's like, and it's happening in the forest, and it's just I don't know, it's a really, really neat experience. So I'm glad these students get to have that. And for you, those listeners just joining in, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday at 7 o'clock. And tonight we are lucky to be joined by Sarah Kelly, who's describing some of her research in the H.A. Andrews Experimental Forest. 
where she works with kids to kind of help them develop a connection and understand what values that they have that connect to the forest. Um, but I want to ask you, how did you, as a kid, uh, did you always have these kinds of connections to the forest or to nature? Like, how, how did that develop in you? Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I think you think a lot about when you're in environmental education, especially when so much research says, oh, well, if you're an environmentalist or you care about the environment, that you probably can go back and see these formative experiences in nature that led to it. But in reality, I mean, we all have formative experiences in nature, right? We're humans and we're we're part of it. We're part of nature. And so I definitely have that and I can point to specific experiences. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I grew up in an area where um, I had a lot. My family had a lot of land. And so I was able to explore the woods and play on the banks of the bayou and uh, my parents actually owned a golf course too so there's some interesting uh, connections there because there are some things like in the bayou for instance I we had this frame of a car in it right and so (laughs) how I developed curiosity is I pondered how that car got into the bayou and I think you know seeing things like that when you're really young things that um you know don't belong there and you know that have an impact on the turtles that you see living in there and the fish that are swimming around and myself I didn't even feel comfortable getting in the water because I figured it was pretty toxic Um, (laughs) but I still loved it and I loved the place and I still feel very connected to it so I definitely think um, I I bring it back to to my experiences in in Alvin Texas just south of Houston um, where I really had a lot of time outside and thinking about what we what we do to the land and and um and in some ways like really just enjoying the beauty of it seeing the oil come up from the frame of the car and the rainbow like i was really (laughs) enthralled by that and i didn't necessarily think about that's good or bad you know Mm -hmm. but eventually you went on to college and ended up not studying um the environmental sciences initially right yeah yeah, so I uh, I went to the University of Houston, go Cougs, and, uh, <laughs> and I graduated with a degree in communication. And what led me to communication really was the opportunity to take classes from so many different departments because I had so many interests, and I'm still the same way. I'm in an interdisciplinary master's program. Mm-hmm. So, um, But I knew that I wanted to do something that would make an impact, and I had a friend who was doing an internship. I'll, I'll call her out. Maybe she's listening. Kia Crosby, who was doing an internship with the Green Lily events in Houston. And it just sounded so interesting. I had some event experience, event planning experience before that. But they were trying to reduce waste and they were working with companies and doing some consultations for marathons, doing art shows and weddings and trying to think about when we have these events, how can we reduce our impact on the environment? And, and a lot of it had to do with, you know, waste aversion and kinds of purchasing that you're making the kind of food that you're purchasing. And so um, being exposed to that kind of environment where they worked in a co-living space where a lot of them were environmentally minded businesses and just seeing people asking questions and deciding what's morally right and morally wrong for us to do. It's just like, whoa, I've never been exposed to that kind of world before. And it opened everything up for me then. That sounds like a really good atmosphere to to find some of those hard questions, you know, 
of uh, should we use reusable uh, silverware? Like how many napkins do we provide? Like that's sounds like it's on a small scale of what kind of impact you can have, but you're having a very real impact for every event that you're a part of. So when you're thinking about trying to be more sustainable in this world, that that sounds like it was very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it, it led me to, you know, where I am today for sure. And it led me to, to um, working as the, the manager for the University of Houston after I graduated, the first um, manager of the Office of Sustainability there. And I, I miss so much of it very fondly and mostly the students. The students were amazing, so passionate and creative and driven. And now they're the students that I had in the office. I have a student who um, no longer a student, but a former student who's working as an energy and sustainability coordinator at a university in California. Another student who's working as a communication specialist for Nature Bridge, which is a really great uh, environmental education organization that's um, in California and Oregon and other states. And I have another student who just got into physical therapy school and he's an activist for veganism. And he just saw a picture of him on a barn uh, at a, a farm sanctuary with some pigs and he was like helping that and that that really is what it's all about for me that is what motivates me is feeling like I maybe had some kind of connection to these other people who were doing really fabulous things so then what made you decide to come to Oregon State if you had such an awesome gig there well, when I first started in the position, I, I came to Portland for a conference, actually, for the AC conference with my husband. And we just fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. And as connected as I was to place and to all my people in Houston and to my job, I knew for a long time that I wanted to try to live somewhere else and just see what it would be like. Um, Doing sustainability work in Houston, Texas is not the easiest thing, if you could imagine. <laughs> so I wanted to go to a place that had more opportunity, more programs, and learn from people who've been doing this work for much longer than I have. And I had that opportunity in the Pacific Northwest at a couple different universities. But I picked Oregon State University in the Environmental Arts Humanities program because it really is bringing together these different disciplines. And, you know, for a while I thought I need a science degree. I need that credibility. And I'm so glad that I chose this because now I'm, I'm getting to integrate all these different disciplines together. Yeah. I think, um, one neat experience that you've had here is going on this retreat at, um, the spring Creek project, I believe. Yeah. And, um, I think it'd be really interesting for you to share kind of what that is, because this is an opportunity that, um, Graduate students, maybe even undergraduates, you can um, maybe explain a little bit more about that, can apply for to go and have this experience um, to do some writing or work on some project out in the forest. Yeah, so the Spring Creek Project, they're actually affiliated also with the Forest Understory book, believe it or not. <laughs> um, Spring Creek was co-founded by Kathleen Dean Moore, and she she's a, a great driving force in, in Corvallis for the environmental movement. She's an environmental writer, moral philosopher, and she had this this phenomenal idea to start the, the Spring Creek Project. And so they're able to support writing residencies, both at Shop Pouch Cabin in the 
the Coast Range and at the Andrews Forest. And so they offer now a, a graduate writing retreat for graduate students. I don't think for undergrads, okay. but yeah. maybe they'll expand. Who knows? <laughs> um, at Shop Pouch Cabin right now. And I, they are talking about expanding to the Andrews Forest as well. I think they used to offer it. But you just apply and I think it happens you have an opportunity in the winter and the spring and they really encourage collaborative residencies I did a collaborative residency with a graduate student named Jill Sisson and she is doing a project about night at the Andrews and it's she, we should have her on because it's it's Definitely. really cool um, so yeah great opportunity for grad students definitely connect with Spring Creek Project they have so many great events and presentations and lectures and opportunities happening here. And I think I would be remiss not to say the Permanent People's Tribunal on fracking and climate change is coming up in May, and you definitely need to keep your eye out on that. They're going to have a um, panel of judges and lawyers who hear all this testimony about whether or not fracking is a human rights violation. And it's, wow. it's going to be pretty phenomenal. Very interesting. Um, so we have our two traditions here on inspiration dissemination. And, um, the first one is for you to give, um, a bit of advice. And so could you go ahead and tell us your bit of advice and who it is for? Oh, I didn't know it was supposed to be for someone specifically, but (laughs) I think this is for all people. Um, I thought a lot about this and it's something that I, I, you know, I, I think I've struggled with and I know a lot of graduate students, but I think it's it's just a common human issue is feeling like we don't really belong or that we're not doing everything that we could be doing or should be doing. And that's is that kind of um, that feeling of being an imposter, imposter syndrome. Right. I think mm-hmm. as grad students, we all know about that. But I would say to anyone who's feeling that way, to feeling like you don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it and you're not doing it the right way, I think you're probably pushing yourself beyond what a lot of people do. And you should be celebrating that because you're amazing and you're doing exactly what you should be doing. And you need to keep the fight alive because we need you. We need you to be doing that hard work. And um, when you're feeling like it's all just too much, just breathe. Just breathe. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I feel very centered. Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> Thank you for that, Sarah. Um, before we get to our second tradition, I would, I'm hoping you can give a plug to your current graduate program because I hear it's somewhat new. So can you yeah. give a little uh, touch on that, please? Yeah. So the Environmental Arts and Humanities program, I am in the first ever cohort for this program. I think the application deadline just ended, but you should definitely look into it if you're interested in graduate school. It's an interdisciplinary program bringing together environmental philosophy and history and science, ethics, and we have a lot of really phenomenal faculty who we're able to work with, and it's great. Look it up. Environmental Arts and Humanities. Check it out. (laughs) Uh, The second tradition that we have is we ask you for a song. Uh, So what song did you choose and why? So I chose... uh, piano song that I heard for the first time while I was in grad school. 
And it was one of those moments when I was feeling like an imposter (laughs) and like I was taking on too much and I couldn't work through it. And I heard it and everything stopped. And I was able to find that moment where I could breathe and I could think about where I had been, what I was doing and where I wanted to go. And the song is from Ludovico Anodi and it's Novole Bianche. Hopefully I said that right. It's Italian. Yeah, it sounded good to me. And I guess I just have to share this one little bit. So Sarah shared the song with me so I could have her prepared to share on air today. And um, when I listened to it, I really felt a connection to the song as well and um, have since acquired the piano music for it and have been learning to play it on the piano. So, um, yeah, so two of us here connecting with this song. Maybe you will, too. (laughs) I hope so, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. It's been so great talking to you and learning more about your research. It's been really fun. I think every grad student should come on this show because y'all are amazing and you do a really fabulous job with this. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here we have Nouvelle Bianche.